A reading from 2 Kings. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The company of prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take your master away from you? And he said, Yes, I know. Keep silent. Elijah said to him, Elisha, stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The company of prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take your master away from you? And he answered, Yes, I know. Be silent. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the company of prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his mantle and rolled it up and struck the water. The water was parted to the one side and to the other, until the two of them crossed on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me what I may do for you before I am taken from you. Elisha said, Please let me inherit a double share of your spirit. He responded, You have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it will be granted to you. If not, it will not. As they continued walking and talking, a chariot of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah ascended in a whirlwind into heaven. Elisha kept watching and crying out, Father, Father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. But when he could no longer see him, he grasped his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. The word of the Lord. A reading from 2 Corinthians. Even if our gospel is veiled... It is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not proclaim ourselves. We proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who said, let light shine out of darkness who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became dazzling white such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. And suddenly when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. 
As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. This obviously is the last week of the season of Epiphany with Lent just beginning on Wednesday. And um, this story, the Transfiguration, this is actually not the festal day of the Transfiguration. We do that later in the summer. So I suspect you've heard it many times in your church life. And uh, I suppose the, the reason I've been told that we get it now ahead of Lent and then we get it sort of when it happened later is that uh, it's there to remind us of the glory of Jesus before the season of penitence before Lent. So we're supposed to have the end in mind before we begin the journey of Lent. That could be. Of course, Jesus himself didn't do it that way. Uh, He got baptized, and then he was tempted, and the transfiguration happened after that. I've also been told that this is a really sort of a, a neat story, in which Jesus is with Moses, who represents the law, and with Elijah, who represents the prophets. So this is one of those neat stories about who Jesus represents, the law and the prophets, or somewhere in the middle. That's neat. I don't know how to talk anymore about that, though. (laughs) Uh, Usually, I hear this story, and hearing the disciples who have just seen this vision of Jesus and be told to listen to him. And you know, the next thing that happens in the story is that they go down the mountain and there's a boy possessed by an unclean spirit and they can't drive the spirit out. And the father of the boy comes to Jesus and says, could you do something? Your followers can't help me. And Jesus sort of says, oy vey. You wicked and perverse generation. That's what he says about his own disciples. So I often read this story as the disciples have seen this glory and they're somehow unable to put it to any practical use. Sort of a scathing commentary on the church, don't you think? We're asked to consider whether or not our vision of God's glory goes to any practical use for those who are in dire need. The sermon's not about that today, though. (laughs) because I preached that one back in July. (laughs) Now, the the trend has been, this is epiphany, and I've been asking you to consider along with me, not what's an epiphany for us initially, but rather what would have been an epiphany for Jesus? How How did his way of relating to the world change after these events, like after he was baptized, and after he met that person with the unclean spirit that he engaged? And last week, about how the disciples wanted him to stay and he wanted to go. So I'm going to ask you to walk with me, not just to fill the time, but hopefully it'll lead us to a different one as well, about what this could have meant for Jesus. It is true that Moses and Elijah show up and they represent the Hebrew Bible for us. At the time of Jesus, uh, many Jewish people did not read Elijah or care about the prophets. You've heard about them before, they're called the Sadducees. The Sadducees only read the part of the Jewish Bible that was passed on by Moses. We call that now the Pentateuch 
or the Torah, and those are the books, if you know your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, five, Pentateuch. If you're a Sadducee, you stopped there, and by the time you were 13, you had most of those books memorized, including the exciting genealogies in Genesis and the temple regulations in Exodus, and let's not forget most of Leviticus. (laughs) So you had to know that to be a man if you were a Sadducee. You had to know it by heart. Jesus certainly knew that. Jesus, though, isn't a Sadducee. We know it for sure because he quotes the prophets and the Psalms. So you've heard of another group in the Bible called the Pharisees. Those are people who read about Joshua and Judges and Ruth and 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, etc. Jesus read those people because he quotes them. So because this is his upbringing, here comes Elijah representing those folks. No doubt, Jesus knew what they said by the time he was 13 because that was what his tradition sent him to Hebrew school for. What's interesting, though, and and I can tell you, having grown up in the tradition I grew up in, where our idea of fun, and I'll tell you at the time, it was a lot of fun. We would get together in uh, the third grade and the fourth grade and the fifth grade and much of youth group. uh, Somebody would say... Jeremiah 27, 33. And the first person who could flip there would get like a piece of candy. Did anybody do that? Man, that was fun. That was so fun. Uh, I was good at it. Uh, I like that. It's nice winning, winning at Bible drills. And we would have competitions to see who could memorize more parts of Scripture than anybody else. Anybody do that before? We had a memory verse every week, memorize that word for word. Of course, the thing we never did. We never said, okay, the Bible says this, but what does it mean? We never did that. Because obviously it meant exactly what it said. Unless it didn't. Like when we learned that you can't wear clothes made out of two kinds of fabric. That was neat. <laughs> but let me tell you, I'm grateful every day for my cotton polyester blend because I'm not good at ironing, are you? You might be good, but do you want to do it every day? Anyway, this was a great thing. So we learned the scripture, and then actually what we learned is to not pay attention to it. Here's Jesus, though, who knows what Moses had to say and what Elijah had to say, and he doesn't quote them. They don't show up in Jesus' says, look, Peter, it's Moses. Let me tell you what he wrote. Look, James, it's Elijah. Let me tell you all about what he did. They showed up, and Jesus had a conversation with them. Now, figuratively for me, that represents not that Jesus knows his Bible, but that he talks with the Bible about where God would have him go and how God would have him live. And quite honestly, if a conversation, if everybody agrees, it's not a conversation, it's a monologue. Wish I could have heard the conversation. Because you know, Jesus does disagree with Moses. The Gospels bear this out. Jesus says, you've heard it written on the Sabbath, you can't work. But which one of you, if your donkey falls into a well, would not pull it out? 
I wonder if he said, Moses, <laughs> when you passed that law down, were you thinking about donkeys? Or were you just kind of giving us a general rule to which there could be exceptions? I wonder what Moses had to say about that. Of course, we don't know what they talked about. I wonder, you probably all know this story if you went to Sunday school. It's on the flannel board where Elijah goes up on the mountain and the fire comes down from heaven and burns up the, the sacrifice. You've heard that story before? After the story, Elijah slits the throats of 500 prophets of Baal. I wonder if Jesus said, Elijah, really, do you think that was the best idea? <laughs> Conversion by the sword. I wonder if they had that conversation. We don't know. We know that the disciples are just absolutely awestruck that anybody would talk with the Bible. So much so, they probably didn't even listen. I wonder if that voice from heaven isn't as much for Moses and Elijah to hear as it is for the disciples. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. I wonder if this isn't Jesus ahead of Lent telling us that the Christian life is not about quoting Moses and Elijah, but living our life in conversation with them. And this is an offering to us that not only is it sort of okay, but that it's part of our goal to have a conversation with Bible and reason and tradition about where larger life is. See, that's the whole thing about the donkey, right? Given a rule and a life, you pick the life. I haven't really gone to churches where we talked like that. But I wonder if that isn't part of the function of the narrative is for us to think through what are we picking, rules or lives? And how should we be picking rules or lives? And I know Jesus is the Son of God, but aren't we all children of God? I wonder if the voice from heaven isn't saying, these are my children, listen to them. More about this thing in a second. There's this other story from the Hebrew Bible that kind of is weird. You know, Elijah is sort of the boss, and there's the free intern, Elisha, who's been following around and sort of doing whatever the boss said to do. And now the boss is going to retire, you could say, <laughs> um, in a whirlwind. Now, now, you thought he was carried up to heaven in a chariot, but you know the story didn't say that. The chariot split them apart so he could go up in... Like, Dor like Dorothy, you know, sort of go up in the tornado. Um, that's what he does. And he sort of tells his unpaid intern, listen, I'm going to go up in a tornado, so you just sort of stay here in the cubicle. You can run the office after that. <laughs> and Elisha says, no, no, I'll go with you. So they go through, interestingly enough, a bunch of really important places in Israel's history. Gilgal. That's the first place that when Joshua crossed the Jordan with the people, that they entered into the promised land and they camped. They went to the very first place of their new home. Elijah says, stay here. He said, no, I'll go with you. They go on to Bethel, which, by the way, is like two kilometers away. They go to Bethel. That's the place where Jacob, running away from his brother, having just cheated him, he has that dream of the stairway to heaven, you know the Led Zeppelin song, at least, if you don't know the story. Uh, 
That's the dream. And then Jacob wakes up and says, God lives here. That mean, that's what Bethel means, God's house. Surely God was in this place, and I never knew it. So they've now gone from home to an experience of God outside of home, a surprising one. You mean God could live in the desert? Yes. Elijah says, stay here. No, next place they go is Jericho. You know that place, right? And the walls came tumbling down. That's the place where insuperable obstacles were rendered moot by God. That's the place where impossible salvation was opened wide up. Then they go to the Jordan. The Jordan is like, well, you know what Moses led the people across, don't you? The Sea of Reeds, when that got parted. Joshua parts the Sea of Reeds. They walk in. This is their gateway. Again, through an insuperable obstacle to the promised land, it gets parted. They walk through on dry ground. What do you know? Elijah parts it. They walk through on dry ground. And then when they get to the other side, and I showed you a picture if you were there today. You can see it in Jordan. That's the place where the whirlwind supposedly came and took Elijah up. It's almost like Elijah and Elisha is saying, and I think this is probably important ahead of Lent, and the journey that's coming up, don't pretend like it's a new journey. Don't pretend like you've not been brought anywhere already. Go back to the places where God has already represented larger life for you. Places like insuperable obstacles being parted and you walking through on dry ground. That's happened to me before. Not as often as I'd like, but it's happened to me before. Go back to places where you saw God in places you didn't think it was possible. Places like Bethel. Go back and visit those so you can get ready to do it again. Go back to that first time you felt home in a church, in a family, in a relationship, so that you can prepare to go to a new home. This Lent, don't you see? The goal of Lent is to give you more home and more joy and more understanding of God's presence. In order to get ready for where God would have you go this year, go back to those things with gratitude and be ready to expect God to do it. I think that's why the story's there. And I think all of this is probably wrapped up, quite honestly, in this epistle that we get today from 2 Corinthians, in which Paul says, you know, often, Often, we have this experience of the gospel, and that means good news, that means larger life than we typically use, live, that is veiled. We only kind of live into it. We only kind of see it. Maybe the whole point is God would love for us to help God in lifting the veil so that the joy and light that God intend for us in the world can shine brightly. Maybe we only do that when we realize that God has created us worthy enough to talk about important stuff <laughs> and to listen. Now this is a strange thing, and, and I hope I don't offend you by telling, me, telling you this, but it, it occurs to me that we are not very good listeners as as folk in the world. 
Some of you are tremendous listeners. I know that already. I'll just talk about myself. I'm not always a really good listener. Sometimes in groups in which we're talking about something, for lots of compassion, I will talk over people. Because I know it's difficult for them to talk, you know, on their own. I, I, I know what they want to say, so I just help them, <laughs> you know, and we all feel better, you know, because we did that faster. <sighs> you ever been in a group that somehow was seized by inspiration and made room for somebody who, for whatever reason, never felt comfortable talking? I've been around folks before. This is going to surprise you. That were really strange. <laughs> I remember one time, this was a senior in high school, and I was there as a weekend missionary. We led lock-ins and Sunday morning services, and there was this just very strange 17-year-old. Whenever he had something to say, it was usually really weird. So we decided we would be compassionate and stop asking him things. Because <laughs> he just embarrassed himself, you know, and nobody wants to be embarrassed, so if we quit asking him, that was just really, really helpful, you know. This sounds subconscious. No, I was very aware I was doing this. I just want to be clear. I was, I was compassionately talking over him. And then this bizarre moment came. Oh, I think I dared ask an open-ended question, and there was a group and this boy spoke up. He said something, um, well, usually he said something really strange, like he made a weird noise, or he would quote a song lyric that had nothing to do with what we were talking about. But, um, but he told this story about how his mother had died as a young boy and how his father continued to abuse him every day he went home. And I think it was the first time anybody in that church listened to him. Listened. Did he have a conversation with Moses and Elijah in front of us? I don't know. But I will tell you, I'm positive. It's one of the first moments he felt like a beloved child of God because he was worth listening to for a change. Because the people in the group, instead of saying, oh, you're just crazy or you've made that up, their eyes got wide and they never realized. Part of the reason he behaved like he did was to survive. I wonder if God isn't calling us to listen like that. See, he's not the only person. You all know people that get talked over or not heard compassionately and it is grueling sometimes to ask a question and to wait I don't mean seconds I mean minutes <laughs> sometimes you wait and you think well they're just not going to answer so we'll just move on to the next thing you know to help them out to make a place where somebody can share their story and how their story is conversing with Moses and Elijah and the idea that God might possibly dare to love them See, Lent isn't just about giving stuff up, and it most certainly isn't about making us miserable. Um, in general, we've approached it that way for a long, long time, that the best way to make God happy is to make ourselves miserable. <laughs> that just couldn't be further from the truth. Remember, Jesus is here to give good news, not sad news. 
That's really sad news, isn't it? That God would want you to be miserable because that would make God happy. No, instead, this Lent business is that God has really got this idea that we could live bigger than we do. And God would really like us to do it. And what would it take? Take some discipline. Quite honestly, I might not have to give anything up this Lent. I might just have to take something else on, you know? I might not have to give up running or or eating chocolate. I I might have to take up listening. Not just to other people. Taking myself seriously. Maybe, maybe you need to take up on us a listening discipline. Trusting that God cares enough about you that you're worth listening to. Life's pretty full, you know. Life's full, and it's really hard to think about adding something else, and I think that's why Lent really isn't just about giving up or adding on. I think Lent's about making trades. Truth is, we all know stuff we we do that isn't giving life to anybody. We like doing it, (laughs) you know. wonder if we could trade some of that stuff for things that give life to other people. Of course, the reason that would make God happy is because it would make us happy. And it would make our lives larger. And I am positive that this sort of way of considering might have been an epiphany for Jesus. That his voice is worth hearing. That his conversation with God as a beloved child is worth cultivating. And I think Jesus dares to ask us to join him this Lent. Not just in reciting, but in conversing. Not just in speaking, but in listening. And I dare say Jesus invites us not just to follow, but to lead. Isn't that the point of an epiphany? To make things better for everybody else. I'd say the whole point of the season is not just to hear how Jesus had them, but for us to be them, to be epiphanies to a world desperately in need of some larger life. My prayer as we get ready for Wednesday is that we'll know where God wants us to follow and where God wants us to lead and what kind of trades we could do that would make the world look more like God imagines it. Amen.